we are about to fill your earballs with another 99th episode. So open them big and open them wide. Nothing got better. In fact, it got worse. So hey, but I'm hopeful. Yes. Anyhow. Anyhow. Okay. So, <laughs> I wanted to institute introductions. I'm Sean, and you are? I am Paul. And we have some interrogations today. Yeah, we do. We wanted to do something a little bit different than just uh, chit-chatting, so we decided to come up with some questions for each other, and we'll see how this goes. And I don't know what questions you have for me, and you don't know what questions I have for you, so I'm breaking out the the spotlight or the heat light, whatever it is in the cop shows that they put on the person while they ask them the questions. And To be candid, I have not put as much thought into this as I had intended to because this week ended up being very crazy. So you've got really crappy questions is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So this is how I want to approach it. I want you to ask your questions first. Okay. Because one, they might inspire me to ask something better than what I just came up with off the top of my head. Okay. And two... If I don't feel like my questions are up to par, I can just call an audible and say that next time will be your turn. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So give me the flexibility because I, I did put down some questions and I have my uh, my my brand new iPad here with the notes app open so I can type some notes. Um, oh, wow. So I, I might be able to improve them as we go or maybe they actually aren't as bad as I think. We'll see. I mean, I don't think mine aren't. The most I mean, amazing you're questions. Yours up. Maybe yours are kind of awful, also, and like mine will actually be impressive in comparisons. I yeah, I talked. I talked a big <laughs> talk, but I mean, I just kind of spent three minutes thinking of a couple <laughs> mediocre <laughs> questions. So, I mean, <laughs> this isn't like I've been pondering this for days and days and days to come up with the perfect questions. Uh, you you created the hype. You got to live up to it now. I know. All right. Well, let's jump into it, huh? All right. Let's go. Okay. First question. This is a pretty obvious one that you've probably heard before. If you can only keep one of your collectible items, only one, which is it going to be? Yeah, it's a funny question because it really depends on how you look at things too. Mm -hmm. So funny enough, last night I decided to sell something that when I realized how valuable it was, my first thought was just like, well, this is just going to be like a gem for me that I'm just going to keep. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a rare Ninja Turtles comic. The what volume? I think it's the the fourth volume of Ninja Turtles. It's Mirage Publishing, but it's it. So there's been like three volumes of Mirage. The first one was like the start, you know. The second one was uh, kind of a shorter run, and it was still Eastman and Laird. And then if if I'm remembering the numbers of everything right, the third one was Image. And the fourth one is Mirage, but Peter, it's just Peter Laird because they had sold the rights to TMNT to, I think, to Nickelodeon. And, but in the agreement, Laird was able to self publish uh, a certain amount of Ninja Turtle comics a year or something like that. Like, I, it is all stuff that I've been told by people who are more knowledgeable about it than I am. Uh, and so the it's the thirty second issue, the final issue that he did of it. It was like self published, um, not distributed through Diamond. I bought it from him 
at a signing that he did with Eastman for the 30th anniversary uh, for 10 bucks. And I just like, I've had it tucked away. I had it signed by Laird Eastman and Jim Lawson and Steve Levine were there also. It was at Steve Levine's uh, comic shop that uh, no longer exists uh, in Wells, Maine. And so it was like a pretty cool thing. But like, I've just had it like tucked away all this time. And then I was tra- I was talking with somebody who I kind of met on Twitter who's a big Ninja Turtles fan and I think much more knowledgeable than I am too because every time like I bring anything up he's able to tell me like five facts about it, you know. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, I showed it to him and he's like, "Oh man, I've been trying to find that. It's really valuable." And then I looked on eBay and raw not signed or anything either. It's selling for like one to two hundred dollars. Okay, yeah, and yeah. So I was like, oh man. So I messaged um, Zach, who was the guy who owned the the comic shop that I went to, and he closed down before COVID of his own accord. And he's still working in comics though, in a um, in a, a different capacity. Uh, I don't, I can tell you exactly what he does, but it's something dealing with comics. And he was kind of I was asking him like what should I do with this and he kind of told me you know well you you can get a CGC you can get it whatever the other one is like they'll verify signatures and I was thinking of doing that the other one uh and getting it verified it would end up costing like 100 bucks to get it graded and then like tw- I think 20 bucks per signature to get them verified mm-hmm. so I was like oh you know I'll I'll wait and eventually I'll pay to do that and then I'll have this like awesome little gem and then if I ever want to sell it like it'll be worth more because of doing that and it'll protect its value and then I was starting to um, really want to get an iPad because I have a Kindle, but there's it, it's a, a nice 10 inch Kindle. It's great for reading comics and everything, but there's definitely some differences between Kindle and iPad. I've had an iPad before, and some of the, the drawbacks to the Kindle were starting to be more bothersome. And I want to give my Kindle to my son because he has a, a kid's Kindle. And those suck. <laughs> it's it's basically just like one of the little Kindles, but they put this padding on it, which is fine. But they preload all this software that makes it run like crap. Mm, so nice. it's super irritating. And I was like, I just want him to have a normal one. So I th- so I was like, oh man, I was looking, you know, how much iPads cost and thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? If I sell that, like I had some money put away already. I was like, if I sell that. I can get an iPad. Like, how much does a comic that I just have stuck in a box that honestly, like, visually, the cover is not that appealing. Like, it's okay, but, you know, it's nothing amazing. It's signed by all these guys, but I also have um, a really cool print that I bought when I went to that signing that's signed by all of them. And I had them all sign uh, inside my Volume 1 hardcover of the original Mirage TMNT. Long story short, like, as far as your question, and I know that's like a big tangent to the question... That kind of challenged my my values of what's the most important thing in my collection. Mm, I see. Do you think that that was the thing you would most value in your collection? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, my, my honest answer to that, just logically, would be choosing an item that is either irreplaceable or is the most valuable. Because if you can only choose one thing, if you choose the most valuable thing, even if you would actually rather have something else, you sell the most valuable thing, guess what? You can buy the other things then, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess uh, my answer to that question, if like if I could literally only choose one item, is it would be my X Men ninety four because that was the item that kind of opened the door to me want to um, like me actually pursuing collecting the whole run of X Men from that point to the end of the volume one of Uncanny X Men, mm-hmm. and 
if I didn't have like if if I lost that, I would never do it again. Gotcha. And even if I decided, yeah, if I saved that one thing and I decided not to do it again, like that on its own it was an awesome thing to have. You know, it it also ticks the box of it's the most valuable single item that I have. So if I save that and had nothing else and then I wanted to sell it to be able to like replenish something else, it would work it would work in that way too. But yeah, so Uncanny X Men ninety four. Okay. X Men ninety four because it wasn't uncanny yet. That's a pretty good choice. I like it. That's a good question. Okay, so that's kind of uh, <clears throat> now you have an idea of the level of question that I'm asking. Do All right, you... I think I can ask my questions okay. too. Then okay, I, I, I don't think they're falling. Yeah, so and I can probably kind of tweak them as we go too uh, if I get other ideas. But um, so my first question for you, I was thinking about this, and I like this question for a couple of reasons. But I'll just ask the question. Okay. What What is some of your guilty pleasure music? So some of the music that like you, if somebody asks you what you like, you would not say you like it. But if you hear it, you love hearing it. Okay. Yeah. All right. This is interesting because this is an embarrassing <laughs> question to answer. Or, or yeah. it can be, right? Because if I'm not willing to admit it, that is a very kind of... <laughs> telling about what it is because I don't a lot of the music I listen to I can't really say is objectively good it's like heavy metal and l- low quality punk rock music but it's what I like so mm-hmm. you know I've already kind of admitting to liking music that is not really objectively good music that yeah, but when you people... say you like like indie punk or underground punk or something like that like that's not embarrassing. It, yeah, it's yeah. like, that's cool. That's me. It's representing yourself. Like, and I'm not saying anybody should be embarrassed by representing themselves and who they are and what they like. But like, my example of it is, um, I texted you last night and asked if you ever listened to Limp Bizkit and you're like, uh, embarrassingly, yes. And I was like, uh, yeah, yes. me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that kind of thing. You know, you, you wouldn't tell somebody like, if somebody's like, what do you like? You wouldn't be like, I like Limp Bizkit. Yeah. You I was, would be like, <laughs> I like this. And it, you, but if that one Limp Bizkit song comes on, that's still like, you know, rings that bell on you you'd be like oh yeah <laughs> yeah that's true yeah it's uh, <laughs> i will admit i did listen to limp biscuit when it was coming out in the what was that like the late 90s yeah when rap metal seemed like whoa such an innovation <laughs> when it, <laughs> it was actually really just not very good not very they good were, they were my favorite for a bit and um now i have listened to just good rap and i realized that i just wanted to find good rap <laughs> Gotcha. Uh huh. Yeah, it's like a gateway too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like oh, I didn't actually like this. I just it was closer to what I wanted. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It, t- it t- turns out just actually good rap and good metal is better than Limp Biscuit. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like it's like the astronauts that had to go all the way around the dark side of the moon to get back to Earth. <laughs> it's kind of like that, I think. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, I'm having trouble thinking of a type of music like a whole genre throughout songs and stuff like yeah it's it's, i think it's more of a usually like i love this song inexplicably or i love this one artist yeah so there is one song that comes to mind as a guilty pleasure that i'm going to admit and it's, it's very embarrassing because it's totally like outside of the type of music that i like because i really don't like pop music just like your typical pop music 
you know, that yep. would be like top 40 pop, whatever that is. I've, I haven't listened to that since I was like 10 years old and that was the only thing on the radio. Yeah. But there's one song that I always just inexplicably liked for some reason. And it's by Kelly Clarkson, which <laughs> right there should give you an idea of how poppy it is. And because Kelly Clarkson was the first winner of what American Idol is that what it is the the song yep. the show where they have to sing and stuff yeah the the song is that since you've been gone song uh huh and y y you know the one I'm talking about yeah yeah right it's just kind of a cheesy pop song <laughs> right but for some reason I just really like it <laughs> and it like I always just really like it when it comes on I'm like all right this is a cool song. Uh, so I think that that is definitely a guilty pleasure. Uh, I'm, t yeah, I I don't even like admitting it because like Kelly Clarkson doesn't go with like yeah I'm a punk and metalhead <laughs> type of view of uh, music, but yeah I I like that. I'm looking through my library here to see if there's anything else that comes to mind. Nothing else really specifically like comes to mind as something that I I really like. Maybe another guilty pleasure would be uh, Word Burglar. He's kind of like a nerd rapper. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't really think of this as a guilty pleasure because I think it it's like just pretty cool music. But he has a whole album that is about GI Joe. It's called Welcome to Cobra Island, nice. and it's just <laughs> like a, a rap album about G.I. Joe, <laughs> and it's awesome. It's really, really cool. And he has, like, an EP about Star Wars, and all of his other, like, non-themed albums just cover a wide range of pop culture and geeky things. He, it's like, he likes the stuff like us, right? He grew up with the toys we grew up with and the movies we grew up with and... Uh, you know, the comics and stuff we, we grew up with. And so it's all just like rapping about that stuff. And yeah. Yeah. And he's, I mean, I don't, I'm not the best person to judge what is a good rapper and what a bad rapper is, but it sounds good to me. Did you ever watch adult swim? Like, uh, you know, Aqua Teen hunger Force, space ghosts, like no, all those shows, not really C Lab 2020. Mm -mm. So, uh, MF doom who just died this last year, did an album with Danger Mouse, who is a producer that was like all over the place for a while. Um, like his uh, one of the biggest things he did was Gnarls Barkley. It was him and CeeLo. Mm. Um, he did this album with MF Doom. Their group is called Danger Doom. And it's all about cartoons. Oh, cool. It's uh, like they actually did some of the bumps for Cartoon Swim or, or sorry, not Cartoon Swim, Adult Swim on Cartoon Network. Like, during their commercials, they would have, like... It was kind of cool, because, like, the, the guys who did Adult Swim, like, really liked good hip-hop, you know? So, it was kind of cool seeing the two things come together. But I loved that. I, like, pre-ordered that album back when, you know, people actually bought music that way and was so excited to to get it. It was the first thing I really, really loved MF Doom uh, doing. Um, I liked him before that, but, like, I loved that. But I think even without... um familiarity with with uh adult swim like you you would really enjoy it because like, it references a lot of other cartoons and stuff like that but just like the way it's put together i think you'd like it and MF, mf doom wears a mask like uh like you know dr doom so yeah 
So I think DJ Danger Mouse did an album. It was called the Gray Album. Yeah. Yeah. That was that's really where cool. He, that's how he got famous. Yeah. Uh, mashing up the Beatles White Album uh, instrumentals with Jay-Z's Black Album. Yeah. That was really cool. I like that a lot. That was an album that got me more interested in, in Jay-Z. And I thought it was just really cool how he turned just little snippets of music from the White Album into beats. Yeah, and that's like an unofficial release too, because I mean he he didn't have any, and that's why Jay Z. It's you know like I'm not a big Jay Z fan, but it's kind of cool that he did stuff like that. Like he released an acapella version of his album, so people could do stuff like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, because it's like part of the creativity, and it's like you know Danger Mouse. Like you can't go buy the Gray album anywhere because it's not legal to sell it. You know, it's a bunch of like you know uncleared samples basically, um, but it it made his name. And it's uh, yeah, definitely a cool thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's uh, go to my question number two. Then I'm getting out my note notepad, keeping it off the keyboard. <laughs> All right. So I'm gonna keep going with this uh, music question. Okay. Is there an album that you heard? And I, I see now. I can't remember if I've actually asked this question or not. Well, if you have. did, it was probably in our lost episode oh, okay. <laughs> where my recording was bad. So, so is is there an album that you heard where you were like, "Wow, I've never heard music like this." Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I think the album that I just the first album that I can remember listening to and like actually just sitting there and listening to the album you know at least once after getting it like not listening while doing anything else but actually just like i'm sitting here listening to this uh is sage francis's first album personal journals Hmm, going back like kind of looking at that compared to his music as he progressed like i i do think he got better from that point there's a lot of songs on there that i still think are are top notch and it represents a different time in his you know his style of music and him, you know, himself personally. Like one thing I've seen him say on Twitter is that like his, his music from when he was younger doesn't resonate with him anymore. Like he doesn't, you know, connect with his own music the same way. And that kind of made, I was kind of seeing that myself. Like I, you know, this music I used to love, I don't love the same way. And it's so like emotionally charged music that that makes sense. I'm not in that same place. And I don't, I think I've talked about this before, but like, I don't necessarily want to bring up the same old emotions that I had that like made those albums so resonant with me. But that album was definitely one. The production on it is really good. Like there's a bunch of different, like each track is, you know, can be produced by different people. You got beats from different people, but some of the, the songs on there, I really love the production for. And if I'm remembering, I don't remember. Oh yeah. I remember which songs. It's actually some of the best songs. So one of the, uh, the producers that was kind of in his realm, uh, is this guy named six two. And he showed him, some songs he made that were just meant to be instrumentals and he's he just took those and made songs with them and then it was kind of like that like okay i guess you can use those beats you know <laughs> okay weird but it's it's uh it was like, i think it's like three songs in a row and like the way the songs flow it wasn't intended to like fit as this like nice little package together but it did fit really well Hmm, cool. Um, so it, yeah, that's, that's probably the most standout one was that one. I know there's been other ones, um, that really grabbed me right off like that, but that was definitely the first one that I can remember that was, um, and that was right when I was really getting into underground hip hop. That was, 
I still remember the first day I was able to go buy CDs because you couldn't like get these just in a, nor- a normal CD store. Like you had to go to like an indie record store and you know, I had been friends with this group of friends that I became friends with this group because I introduced one friend to another friend and they became friends. Then I got pulled into the group too, but they're the ones that introduced me to underground hip hop and they were showing me music and I was like, I want to get this. And I, I couldn't get it until we actually went down to Hollywood to go to some record shops. And I bought his at a store called Penny Lane that I think is the only time I ever went to that store. I might have gone like one other time, but um, it wasn't one of our regular haunts. But the other two stores that we went to was Aaron's Records that I know closed down some number of years ago, but that was a pretty cool one. And then Amoeba Music, which I know you know Amoeba. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so that was one of the, like, I think I probably bought a couple of, the other CD that I got was the Anticon Giga single, which was like basically a mixtape uh, of different songs by different artists. It was like you know, five or six, but it's kind of like getting a Punkorama CD, except, um, all the anti-con label of like this really, uh, indie underground hip hop. Mm-hmm. And those are two, like, I still, I wish I still had that CD and I don't, but, uh, yeah. Anyways, that's my answer. Cool. I think there's a penny lane near me in Upland and I think I've been to it. I don't remember it super well. Cause like I said, I, we only went there like maybe once or twice and it wasn't, it was a much smaller store. Definitely didn't have the, uh, like, I mean, didn't touch Amoebas. Amoebas mm-hmm. was huge. Oh, yeah. Um, Amoebas. Amazing. Aaron's was always really cool. Like, Aaron's and Amoebas were always really good because uh, you could find a lot of used stuff. And a lot of the stuff that we'd want to find, you couldn't get new anyway. So, like, finding used stuff was, it, like, you'd, you'd have some great finds finding used stuff. It was really cool. I used to go to Amoeba Records, like, once a week when I was going to school in Berkeley the one on Telegraph Ave and I would just go through all their used vinyl records and yeah. just buy a bunch of seven inch records for a dollar or two each and just stock up on random stuff like stuff. If it just looked mildly interesting, I just get it because it was yeah. like a dollar or two and might as well. It was, it was so fun to do that. And that's kind of ruined now with streaming music. Cause it's like, you don't need to buy a, a cheap record just to try something new. You just stream it on your phone, yeah. you know, just hit click. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I had started grabbing some records here and there, and I had a cheap record player, and I I realized I was just kind of overspreading myself on having too many things to do and too many interests, and I just, like, bailed, got rid mm-hmm. of all my records, got rid of my record player. I even had the um the Matt Kent Mind Management record and comic, and I, I listened to it and read the comic, and then I sold it. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Was like, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, I listened um, to that one. That was fun. Yeah, that was good. It was a good experience, but... Yeah, Anyways, I, um, I even got the MP3 and I flipped it so you could listen, so I could hear the <laughs> stuff at the beginning and end to to hear what it said. Nice. I should yeah. do that sometime because I know like uh, I got a link to the the digital file for the MP3 when I made the purchase, so that's got to be around somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ah, so. All right, you're yeah. up. Question time, Paul. All right. So, outside of Star Wars movies and I want to throw comic movies out of the conversation too. So like getting into like all other movies, anything else goes, but what are some of your favorite movies that like, uh, I, I want to ask this a little bit differently. Cause I want to be like, well, I just saw knives out and it was good. Um, sure. <laughs> what are movies like that you've loved for years? For example, mm-hmm. planes, trains, and automobiles. I love that movie. Watch it over and over. Jurassic Park, one of my favorite movies, goes back to watching it when I was 10 years old in the theater. So not Star Wars, not comics. What are some other movies that uh, that have stood the test of time with you? Gotcha. Okay. 
All right, there's uh, several that come to mind. Some of them are movies that I, I'm not sure past the rule of, is it a good movie or did you see it when you were eight? <laughs> Question. <laughs> but I won't start with one of those. The one I'll start with is The Princess Bride. That's always been one of my favorite movies. There's so much good stuff in it, and it's such a fun, whimsical fairy tale that still tells a really great story. I've always, yeah. I've always loved The Princess Bride. So. And there's like so many lines in there that you know almost everybody can hit. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Like everybody can say that. You know? Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, inconceivable. <laughs> I'm yeah, not sure I love Andre the Giant means. in it too, because like I, I, you know, as a kid, like a wrestler and anything else was awesome, and like he was good in that movie, you know. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was really funny in that movie, and everyone was really funny in their way. Ah, you know? oh, he's not dead. He's just mostly dead. <laughs> you know, there's there's so much to love in there. So that's one that. Uh, I immediately jump to one that I don't know if this is a it's a good movie or I saw it when it was when I was eight is the Goonies. Oh, that's a good movie. Yeah, I really like the Goonies. It's just such a fun movie. I saw it when I was a kid, so it it got me at just the right time. But I've just I could always sit down and watch the Goonies. It's just it's such a fun adventure and i think i can um recite the sean astin's monologue he gives the chester copperpot speech mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure i could do that like word for word on command i've i've seen it so many times we actually took my son to see that when um some theater started reopening so there's this movie theater down in topsom that called smitty's and they have like table seating you order food so like it's it's always been a good deal and it's a really cool place to go as a family they like set up social distancing really well in it and they were able to reopen playing old movies because their structure is totally different they don't need to have like you know the brand new blockbusters to get people in and then you know charge an arm and leg for you know popcorn and a candy bar yeah you you go there spend very little on the movie sometimes and but like you order a meal you know Mm-hmm. So we took him to see Goonies. They're like when they first reopened, and he loved it. So I, I bought it on DVD, so or Blu-ray, whatever. Uh, so we have that, and we were actually going to go see it again at the drive-in movies, but then I ended up getting stuck at work that day, and and we couldn't go, and I had to cancel it. But yeah, the Goonies is good. Like I was surprised how good it was watching it because I hadn't watched it in forever. Yeah, it's just a really fun movie, and mm-hmm. just thinking about it everything about it just really i i love it it's like the the music makes me immediately just think about it again the fratellis are a comically but still very kind of menacing villains to it all and then it's just like all of the kids have such different characters that come through so well and so strongly and it it's you, you know it's each one is very distinct in their own way, and they play a, a role in the movie in a really strong way, and they just really stick with who they are, and who they are is really, really important. And, oh, uh, yeah, it's 
such a fun movie such a cool yeah. movie even if it doesn't quite make sense that there is a pirate ship up on the oregon coast or whatever it is like <laughs> that part of it doesn't really make sense when i think about yeah. it right i mean pirates were in the caribbean in the golden age of piracy not really like up and down the northwest coast of the united states that wasn't exactly the the biggest piracy zone um, they can go where they want you don't put them in a box they're pirates are that's right yes if we want to go to astoria we will <laughs> yeah i i'm thinking of a, a comedy that i really like and there's two that come to mind right off the bat one is old school I haven't seen it in a really, really long time, but uh. it's one that uh, in college and shortly after college, me and my friends watched a ton. We would put that movie on all the time and watch it, and we really like that. And Zoolander. I know some people love it, some people hate it, but I'm on the love it side of Zoolander. That's The first time I saw Zoolander, I hated it, and then... Uh... I didn't start liking Will Ferrell. Like, I disliked Will Ferrell pretty much until we saw Anchorman. And that just flipped the script, and I was able to go back and watch anything else he did. And I actually, there was stuff I didn't like that I liked after seeing Anchorman. It just kind of opened the door for Will Ferrell for me. Okay. And Zoolander's one. My wife actually loved Zoolander, and I, I was able to like it more. But I also, I didn't like Ben Stiller. And I kind of opened the door for me with him a little bit. Like, I still don't, I don't love Ben Stiller like I I you know for a long time I could watch anything Will Ferrell did until he did some real stinkers and but like uh I really loved Will Ferrell Ben Stiller it's still not that like I can't watch just any Ben Stiller movie and like it but I the stuff that that I do like that he's in I appreciate him more uh he's also in one of my favorite movies and um Sonicami is different kind of movies um the Royal Tenenbaums uh Wes Anderson's oh, yeah. movie mm-hmm. and that movie had a lot of people. I'm like, I don't really like those people, but I love this movie. And I like them in this movie, so maybe I'm a little bit wrong. I watched that not too long ago. That was a very strange movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I liked it. I, I tend to like strange things more so than my wife does, I think. Yeah. like I, I tend to like things if they're just out of the ordinary because they're out of the ordinary and so different. I think I get somewhat bored by ordinary stuff a lot of the times because it just feels repetitive and more of the same so give me something unique and interesting and i will usually enjoy it if for nothing else than for that it's unique and interesting yeah i'm with you on that that i still remember seeing that movie for the first time my sister rented it i went over to visit her my my first nephew was just a baby then uh, and he's a grown up now, uh, so he, he just like just turned eighteen. Um, man, I'm starting to feel old. What are we doing on this podcast? I know we're being old. Paul <laughs> is what we're doing. But I went, I went over and watched it with her, and like I wasn't that impressed with the movie until the scene where Luke Wilson attempts suicide, and the way they like they filmed that, the way they used music in that, like that scene was the one that like made me like just completely get absorbed into the movie. And that was one of the first DVDs I ever owned. And at that time, I lived with a friend of mine and his family. I ended up living for a while in, uh, they had a like a mo- uh, motor home in their backyard. And I lived out in there because sharing a room with my friend was getting a little weird because uh, he was getting a little weird. 
so I lived out in the motorhome to give us more space. And every single night, I had to put a movie on to help me go to sleep. Because, uh, like, you know, whatever, life was just stressful and depressing then. And I watched that movie, like, every night for months. It's a, it's, it's a weird one. It will take your yeah. mind off of your own, the weirdness in your own life. That's for sure. Yeah, it made me really like Gwyneth Paltrow, and then I don't like her in anything else. And now she's also really weird and sells weird candles. Yeah, she was she was good <laughs> in that movie, and and yeah, that's true. She was good in that movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's okay. fast pepper pots. Yeah, for a better yeah. And that's, that's it. I'm yeah, good there. that's it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, my next question: Who is your favorite wrestler, and why? That's a good question. I like that question. My favorite wrestler, I have a very definitive answer to this, uh, is Bret the Hitman Hart. When I first started watching wrestling, my first favorite wrestler was the most obvious one possible, Hulk Hogan. Ooh, uh, no, he's not. Ooh, yeah, that's Macho Man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. Um, looking back, uh, I could definitely choose other wrestlers that were his contemporaries that I love more now, and I uh, like... I get what Hulk Hogan was and, you know, can appreciate it. But I also like, yeah, I mean, it didn't take long and he was my favorite wrestler. Cause when I started watching was right before he left WWF when it was WWF and went to WCW. And I was always a WWF guy. Like I watched WCW too, but like I started with WWF. So I was like my primary, but right after that, like when I started watching was Bret Hart had won the championship from Ric Flair and the first pay-per-view I ever saw, um, like, on VHS renting it after was WrestleMania 9, where he lost the championship to Yokozuna when they cheated. And then Hulk Hogan comes in because uh, they're, like, you know, beating Brett up after the match. And inexplicably, inexplicably Yokozuna, who just won the championship, uh, challenges Hulk Hogan to a match on the spot and loses in, like, seconds. And Hulk Hogan's the champion. And then doesn't wrestle again until the next pay-per-view, which was uh, King of the Ring, the first King of the Ring in June. And WrestleMania was like March or April, probably. Uh, and loses the championship back to Yokozuna, and that's when he leaves WWF. Hmm. So okay. keeping, like, that's that's when I was getting in the, like, the rhythm of keeping up with what was, you know, going on. Like, just watching Bret Hart, like, he became my guy. Like, he represents that, like, you know, you do things the right way, working hard you know perfecting what you do uh like his uh what like one of his slogans was he's the best there is the best there was and the best there ever will be but yeah just like his approach to wrestling like you know looking back at how i've watched wrestling over the years the guys i've been drawn to have always been the ones like him that execute everything really well you know how you do the move is important not just that you can like nowadays you watch wrestling and you get like these different like ideas you know people some people really love the old school stuff and don't like the the like you know, flippy shit. And it's, it's true. Like, I mean, people can do some really impressive stuff now, but if all you're doing is trying to do fancy moves, it gets boring. Like the only way to, to make it more exciting is to do crazier stuff. What's really better is executing a really good match, telling a story with it. And that's what Brett was always really good at. Like he's always really prided himself on, he never injured anybody. Like people get hurt in matches, but he never put somebody else at risk. Hmm. His career was ended by Bill Goldberg who was dangerous and reckless and he kicked him in his head and gave him a severe concussion. Uh, and that was back before concussions were treated seriously. And so like Brett kept trying to wrestle. He ended up having a stroke and like his career was just ended. And it's like, 
kind of really sad uh, to me that like somebody who should have been able to continue wrestling later in the, in their life. Yeah, he actually did end up wrestling a little bit later on, but it was you know in a much more kind of controlled way, uh, where it, you know he was able to do so safely. He definitely wasn't like you know out there putting himself at risk, and it was kind of cool to see him have that like last little flash of being involved in stuff. But yeah, he he's my favorite wrestler. I just I, I love what he does and love what he represents about wrestling. So when I was a kid and when I was watching wrestling, which was probably around those years, like 88, 89, 90, maybe 91, Mm -hmm. I never saw any of the pay-per-view stuff. The only thing that I ever saw was the show that came on, I think like Saturday afternoons. Yeah. Probably like WWF superstars or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And it was always just like the majority of the show. It was, it was stuff like, um, here's Rowdy Roddy Piper versus Jack McDougal. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. All the, it was the all squash these, matches. <laughs> yeah, it was these nobody matches, and it's like, oh, I wonder who's gonna win. <laughs> and and the announcers are always like, oh man, Jack McDougal, he's been looking good lately, and if he wins this, this could really be his chance. But of course, they never won, right? <laughs> it was always the like the named wrestlers that that won and then there would be one match at the very end between two like big name wrestlers yeah but it was never like main event type stuff and then the stuff that was the main events like the wrestlemanias and the royal rumbles and the king of the rings and all that stuff that was all pay-per-view and i never saw those so i think that's why it was kind of hard to get into wrestling because this was before the days when wasn't there like a a monday night wrestling show where yeah monday night raw started in like 93 yeah and that's where all the like big dramatic stuff started happening when they started making i think the dramatic stuff part of just the regular programming it seems like yeah and that like i've actually gone back and watched some of the old monday night raw and they still had a lot of squash matches on that where it's just like some nobody's going against like the real guys but they 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 did build this and one thing too with this the saturday morning show they had other shows before monday night raw that that built the story more the one you're talking about that was on saturday mornings like looking back at those those were more kind of like grabbing a match from here and a match from there and it was just like putting something on for kids sort of Mm, um, mm-hmm. cause they did have like going back before and like, I didn't watch this growing up, but they had like Saturday night's main event. That was like probably the equivalent of Monday night raw. And then Monday night raw just kind of became the mainstay of the, like the, the show that was like the anchor show of everything going back and watching the old Monday night raws is funny too, because that's like, I started watching maybe, well, I started watching Monday night raw pretty early on in the the show starting i discovered I, I didn't realize that until going back and and re-watching some of it but that was i started watching it not long after i started watching wrestling so it was kind of like right at the beginning but seeing some of the guys that were clearly new and developing that like i didn't really know who they were until they were more developed like there was a tag team called the smoking guns billy and bart gun they were cowboys you know and watching them wrestle on monday night raw from the beginning and trying to figure out like their finishing move, they had some dangerous finishing moves that they just looked like they were going to kill the other guy. And they finally like figured one out that looked good as a tag team move that uh, was not going to you know murder somebody. <laughs> okay, uh, uh-huh. so that was pretty interesting because some of them were reckless. Interesting, yeah. I just missed all that stuff. So I guess I never saw got to see the good parts of wrestling. I just saw kind of like the cheesiest, most kind of just like put together for 
a quick entertainment parts of wrestling. So that's, I think, why I never really got into it. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, like, oh, you should like Star Wars, but then... Well, I, I don't know. I played the Lego Star Wars video games. Those didn't really do it for me. You know? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's a good, uh, yeah, good good analogy. Yeah. Um, what, so one other thing I'll, I'll throw in with this, too. wasn't specifically what you asked, but my favorite tag team of all time was the Steiner Brothers. Bret Hart was in the Hart Foundation with Jim Danville Neidhart, and they're one of my favorite tag teams. Um, but I, if I had to pick, like, a favorite tag team of all time, it's the Steiner Brothers. Legit Brothers... Uh, amateur wrestling background, two big, strong guys that can throw you around. They used a lot of suplexes and stuff like that. So um, I I liked that. Like, there was a lot of wrestling moves being done, not just, you know, they weren't just, like, the brawlers that are kicking the crap out of people or, you know. Kind of same thing. Like, the, the their approach to matches was really good. They were definitely stiffer than Bret Hart, meaning that they would hurt other people more but not like reckless, but the stuff they could do is amazing. Um, and one of the things that was awesome is, uh, Scott Steiner who, uh, went on after they, you know, years down the road, they stopped being a tag team. Uh, and he became a big single star. He invented the Frankensteiner, uh, which is this move where you throw your opponent off the ropes and you jump up, hook your legs, uh, around their head essentially, and then do like a backflip with them you know, taking them over the top of you. Oh man, that sounds and so it's, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you should like, just um, like look at it on YouTube because like there, it's a move that now is done in different ways, like all the time. Uh, these, you know, there's like headlock, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, it's done all the time now, but not like the Frankensteiner was. The Frankensteiner, like it was like breathtaking then. Uh, but you, if, like, if you watch it now, just the the crispness and precision with how it was done is what makes it so impressive. You know, nowadays you can see a million times where guys are doing a similar move in a match, and it's just like it doesn't mean much of anything. But the Frankensteiner was was something that was unique and special. Okay, yeah, I just pulled up a clip on YouTube. That's gnarly. Yeah, and it's cool yeah. too because like it looks awesome, and it looks like you just you know bash the guy's head into the the mat, but it's actually a really safe move. Hmm. You know, like all you need the other guy to do is to go with you on it and it's super easy. So all the risk is really on Scott Steiner's side, because if he screws it up or if the other guy, you know, screws up his part of it, like Scott Steiner is the one that's going to land straight on his head and get hurt. The other guy's not at risk. Uh huh. So interesting. Cool. All right. My next question for you. Uh, What is the most memorable concert or event that you've been to? The most memorable concerts or event? Man, I, I feel like I've been to a lot of memorable concerts, and they've all been memorable in different ways. Rage Against the Machine was very memorable for being the first really big concert I ever went to. I saw them at the uh, Hollywood Amphitheater at, um, at, where is that, like Hollywood Studios. You know, it's a big 5,000-person arena or something, and this was during the Evil Empire Tour when Rage Against the Machine was like at the height of their powers. That was really cool. I very much remember like just a a bunch of local shows that I went to. There was a a local rock night that was mostly like punk rock bands at the local Ventura Theater. But then Big Bad Voodoo Daddy played at the end. And, you know, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy is a like swing type band. Mm -hmm. Um 
but everybody who was there was there for like the other punk rock type bands. And so nobody knew what to do when Big Bad Voodoo Daddy came on. So everyone just started moshing to, to the swing music. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really awesome. Nice. And um, the Aquabats were very memorable. I saw them once. They were super fun. They, I saw them at this place. It's called The Living Room in Santa Barbara. And they did all sorts of crazy stuff. Like, they started out the show by they all had taped sparkler fireworks onto their guitars. And they lit them. So they were, like, shooting out fireworks over the crowd from the tip of their guitars as they played. <laughs> and at one point, they lit someone on fire on stage like in one of those fire suits they, uh-huh. th- that they have for special effects for movies where you can, whatever, put it on and soak somebody and set them on fire. And they just ran around the stage on fire. And I was like, WTF, this is, this is insane. And one of the members of Aquabats had a waffle maker. And they were making waffles during the set. And in between songs, they would pull all the waffles off the grill and then just throw them out at the crowd. <laughs> and uh it was rather spectacular but the the weirdest part of all is that somebody in the crowd had brought a bag of marshmallows to the show and at some point they started throwing them at the band and then the band started throwing them back as well and so there was just all these marshmallows <laughs> flying all around but what happened because of this was that the marshmallows, most of them just landed on the ground and they would just land in the mosh pit. And so people were just smashing these marshmallows into the ground. And so before long, the entire ground was just this sticky, sticky, (laughs) awful mess. And so as you're running around the mosh pit, every step was like, (laughs) because (laughs) it's these sticky marshmallows on the ground that you're running through and, and jumping through and stuff. And it was so, so bizarre, but that was uh, very, very memorable for that reason. Nice. But, and, and there's others. There's, I think, lots of others. Like I saw this band Code 13, which is a small indie band in a, a tiny room that is probably about twice the size of the office I'm in now recording. And it was, was at Mission Records in San Francisco. And the singer hopped on the back of this big guy who was just kind of running around and moshing and rode him around like a bull while he was still singing his like crazy punk hardcore songs and it like that was very memorable and wild and interesting i think though probably the most memorable is a show i saw when i was still in high school and it is one of my favorite bands ever which is citizen fish most people have probably never even heard of citizen fish they are a ska band or kind of like a ska punk band and They're most of the members of an 80s hardcore punk band, the Subhumans. And the Subhumans are probably like slightly more well-known than Citizen Fish. But again, it's like kind of uh, lesser known indie punk rock type stuff. And um, but it's basically three members of the Subhumans then started this uh, ska punk band when they stopped being the Subhumans. 
and they are just they've always been one of my favorite bands ever since high school and i saw them at a recreation center in my hometown in ventura and they essentially just played on the basketball court of uh this this recreation center there was no stage nothing they just kind of took all their equipment and set it up under one of the basketball hoops on one side of the of the uh the floor and so there was nothing separating us from them and so i was like right up front i was like two feet away from the band members who were sitting there playing so i'm I'm seeing my favorite band play from like feet away to the point where like the singer would like put out the mic to us during choruses so that we could like sing along with them and it was just such this small intimate experience of my favorite band that was really really cool i think that that is probably the the most memorable for just how um close the contact was and how there really wasn't a lot of separation between the band and the audience it was just kind of all of us there together making this event happen so that is i think probably the most memorable awesome yeah all right what's your next question okay all right what is my next question let me get my notepad out all right so i want to go to video games what is the most satisfying to beat video game you've ever played like which game left you the most satisfied when you beat it and got to the end that's an interesting question there's different ways i think to look at that question too because one of the answers could be you know what one was the hardest or that you spent the most time on so like you know kind of from that angle final fantasy 7 is a game that i invested the most into i played that game for over 100 hours and did everything in it then I liked fighting games back before they are what they are now, where you basically pay to get more things rather than beat the game over and over to get more things. Like, that was fun. I think, though, that the the games that really are the most satisfying are the ones with really great stories that, um, like, you just get really compelled to keep playing them because of the story. Um, one of the more recent ones... Well, you know, like both games in this series, the Red Dead Redemption games. Red Dead Redemption 2 was really rewarding because of the story. Red Dead Redemption 1, same thing. Like, um, longer games, a lot to do. But they weren't good just because of the gameplay, although, like, the gameplay was good and that matters. But the stories were good, and the stories is what made you want to keep on playing. Um, But I'm going to go back to uh, a couple of games that it's been a long, long time since I played them, but that stood out to me. And they probably hit it, like, just the right time where I was... In high school still, um, so I wasn't quite to that point, like, just post-high school where, like, I didn't want to play games, I just wanted to hang out with friends kind of a thing. But I was also old enough to, you know, get into more mature stuff and spend more time on stuff. Silent Hill and Parasite Eve. Silent Hill, uh, have you played either of those? No, I haven't. Okay. So Silent Hill was a horror game that would like did a real good job of it um i only ever played the first one i know they made some after that just the the whole atmosphere of everything and i don't remember the story for that one really i I probably don't remember the story for either one really great at this point um but like that those both of those games are games that if they um remade them 
I would totally get them because I, I loved playing those games. That's one. And then Parasite Eve was around the same time and it was more RPG-ish than Silent Hill, where Silent Hill was probably more like um, survival horror where it's like you have limited supplies and it's really about like kind of being slow and cautious. Parasite Eve was less slow and cautious. Um, it was RPG-ish where you, you know, you found stuff, you leveled up your character, you did different things like that. Um, but the story was just like really fun and, um, and big and outrageous. And, uh, both of those games were ones that stood out to me as, as being really enjoyable to, to play through and satisfying to finish. You know, whereas, like I said, Final Fantasy VII, same era for me, but that one was, it was for a different reason, you know? So like, it was really the, the completionism of it that was satisfying, but that's kind of like saying like, ah, I have, I've collected all these comics compared to this story was the best story I read, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. All right. Do you have a, do you have another one? Yeah. Sorry. My iPad, uh, I'm still Uh-oh. not used to unlocking it. <laughs> I'm okay. like, okay, wait, how do I do this? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So, uh, do you still have one more? I believe I've got one more. Okay. I have one I more. Do. We'll finish with yours. You'll end up asking one more, but it'll kind of work out time wise. We're about at an hour. Yeah. Um, perfect. so aside from Valiant, what are your favorite indie comics? Oh, okay. All right. Cool. I think this is pretty easy because I have a box of indie comics that I collect and it, it's very, uh, a few specific things. So uh, first up is Flaming Carrot. I've always been a Flaming Carrot fan since uh, I guess all these indie comics that I'm, I'm a big fans of and that I like to collect are stuff that I was exposed to back in the early 90s when I started to shift away from superheroes and even shift away from Valiant, I started to quickly start to look for stuff that was new and different. And the guys at the comic shop I worked at were very accommodating in pointing me in different directions of stuff to try out that was off the beaten path of the usual superhero fare. So one of those that I got pointed to was Flaming Carrot. And this is by Bob Burden. Um, have you ever read Flaming Carrot? I've read a little bit because there was a crossover with them and, and Ninja uh, the Turtles. Turtles. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've read. And I, I will say, like, grabbing that out of the blue and reading it was... Um, very bizarre. Different, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it probably would have been a different experience if... Because it was definitely, like, it was a flaming carrot comic that the turtles were in, not vice versa. So like it, it didn't have the, the feel of reading a turtles comic, you know, mm-hmm. the crossover happened in uh, issues of flaming carrot, not in issues of turtles. So I think they're drawn by Bob burden. Yeah. And mostly done with Bob burden. I don't know who else was part of that. He's basically, he's a guy with two guns and he wears a mask that is a gigantic carrot that is about as tall as he is. So his head is just a, a giant carrot and it has some flames on top. And that's why he's flaming carrot. And he goes around and he solves crimes and his adventures are just, a, it's kind of like uh, surreal absurdism, I think is, is probably a, a good way to explain what the comic is. His origin story is really great, which is that the way he became Flaming Carrot is he was a, a normal person until he sat down and read 5,000 comic books in a single setting. And, <laughs> and that's what warped his mind to become the Flaming Carrot. Uh, so so that's one. I'm slowly putting together a 
uh, set of all the issues of Flaming Carrot. I have uh, probably about two-thirds of them, or at least of, of the original run of Flaming Carrot. Um, one of my prized possessions that I got at a comic convention is their Flaming Carrot's first issue was this oversized, mat, like magazine-sized black-and-white book that uh, was printed, and I, I got a copy from somebody who had worked with Bob Burden and out of Bob Burden's personal, like his personal collection. So that's pretty cool that that's, I've got the, the first flaming carrot from Bob Burden's stash. That's so awesome. that's, yeah, that's one of my, my favorite possessions that I've got or favorite collectibles I've got. Another one that I'm a big fan of is the original tick by Ben Edlund. And the original 12 issues of The Tick are just fantastic. They are probably the funniest superhero parody books that I've ever read. And they kind of parody a bunch of stuff from like Superman to uh, like Daredevil type ninja stuff. And just really, really funny stuff and uh, really well drawn. And nothing that came later, I feel like, ever quite lived up to those original 12 issues that were actually written and drawn by Ben Edlund. And ben Edlund went and he started doing other movies and TVs and was involved with, like, the different TV series of The Tick and stuff like that. And it that stuff never quite resonated with me quite as much as just those original 12 issues. So those really are one of my favorite things. Let's see. There's a a couple more I want to touch on. The next one is Madman by Mike Allred. Mike Allred is probably, he might be my favorite comic book artist, just in general, my favorite comic book illustrator. And so anything he does, I'm going to like just from a a visual perspective and and visual point of view. And so Madman is, is his own creation. And I really in, enjoy it. It's very, very strange stories. And at times they're just like wacky adventures. At times they're almost like horror. And at times they're just like these really surreal existential investigations into who this person is. And the, the, it kind of evolved as it was um, printed. And it's fun to see that evolution. And it's also... It's really cool to see the evolution of Mike Allred's artwork because it is like his very first published stuff was Madman. And comparing that with his artwork now, it's very recognizably still his artwork, but also just the the skill and his craftsmanship and illustration is, is so, so incredibly evolved and improved now from what it was that's really really cool to see so uh that's another of my favorite indie books and the last that i'll mention he's he's more of a a creator whose stuff i like and it's mostly that i like it from milk and cheese and i came to it through milk and cheese which is a humor strip about two dairy products uh it's basically a block of cheese and a carton of milk that are anthropomorphic and they are violent drunks and they hate everything and so they basically go around 
beating people up and hating things and talking about why they hate them. And the only thing they like is booze and watching TV pretty much. <laughs> and so it's, uh, they're like two and three page long stories. So really, really short, just kind of like quick blasts. Uh, and these are by Evan Dorkin. And as a result of that, I've started to like a lot of the other stuff that Evan Dorkin has done. And so I also collect his, uh, the pirate Corps stuff that he did, which later became hectic planet, a little bit of his dork series as well. And that's like the, the stuff that I like is his indie own comic book stuff, because he's, he's very much somebody who, who it's obvious how much he knows and likes comics, but at the same time, doesn't like the bad stuff about comics. And so in a way, his comics end up being parodies of comics that come from a place of love about comics is I think what, what becomes clear in it. All of those are stuff that I was exposed to in my formative teenage years and have always stuck with me. And so I, I still collect those things. Nice. Yeah. Whew. I feel like that was a long-winded <laughs> <laughs> explanation. I'm surprised you didn't mention concrete. Mm, yeah. You know, concrete is one that I don't collect, though. Yeah. I have it, almost all of it, in collected editions, but I don't actually collect the individual single issues of concrete. So it didn't really come to mind for that reason it, because I was kind of just thinking about, okay, what's in my indie box of comics? Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's kind of uh, the, uh, the way I, I thought about it. Because there's, there's other stuff that I'm a huge fan of. I think, like, I don't know if Planetary counts as an indie thing. It was by Wildstorm back when Wildstorm was independent. And, like, Planetary might be one of my favorite comic book series ever. Yeah. Um, and so, the, like, there's a the, a ton of other stuff. And, like, Bone is up there is one of my favorite comic book series ever. So, you, you know, there's a, a ton of stuff that I could say, but I just stuck with the, the stuff that I collect that nice. is stuck with me since since my impressionable teenage years sounds good all right what's okay. your last question last question what is one album that you think everybody should listen to hmm. that's a hard question i stumped you <laughs> it is hard right because I, it's it's not what you think is or your favorite or the one that means the most to you necessarily because right like my favorite albums i think most people probably shouldn't listen to them yeah so that's an interesting question it makes me think of on twitter recently somebody that that i know posted something about the beatles just about how everybody likes them because they're supposed to and you know they're not actually as good like they're um What's the word? They're um, overrated. Overrated, yeah. Like not that they're not good, but that they've been built up to something bigger or better than what they actually are. And that just got me thinking. Like it's really easy to say stuff like that if you just something doesn't resonate with you. Like there's plenty of you know classic, influential you know musicians that I just meh, don't really care about. Like Rolling Stones, eh? I just like they've never done it for me. You know. So I think like when you hear that question, the first thing you think is what what's the right answer? You know, like what's something that's really influential that people should listen to? And that's like arguing who's the greatest basketball player of all time. Like people are going to have different opinions and different basis for why they think somebody's great. So I think you can say like here's a, you know, a variety of things that are important, but people also have to be like in the right place to try something that's not the norm for them. Like 
I never listened to David Bowie, really, until after he died. I wanted to understand his music better, so I asked somebody who was a big fan, and they gave me some different things. So I think the way I would answer that question is to say something that is important to me, that like if I were choosing something for other people to listen to, like this is something that I think they may not have listened to otherwise. So, you know, that makes it something that that is more personal. It's not something, like, I don't think there is anything that everybody should listen to. Just, like, I don't think there's any book that everybody should read or something like that. Like, whatever one thing somebody tries to to hold up as the greatest or most important thing like that, you know, it just, it's not true because it's all going to be based on perspective. So for me to choose something that is more unique to me, I want to go one of two ways. The more approachable answer for that, for something that I think people would be more likely to to listen to and and get something out of, would be to choose uh, Johnny Cash, and I would choose one of his his live prison recordings. The one that that means more to me is live at San Quentin, which is the second one. Live at Folsom was the first one. Live at San Quentin was the first record I ever bought from a thrift store for a buck, and it. Kind of like I had started listening to Johnny Cash a little bit from some of his American recordings that he did that were produced by Rick Rubin that really kind of revitalized him, uh, you know, late in his life and career. But the the Live at San Quentin, what's really cool about it is a lot of the songs are songs that we all know. Like you don't even have to like country music to know songs like Walk the Line or Ring of Fire, right? Mm-hmm. But listening yeah. to him perform them live compared to the studio recordings, like the studio recordings were so like canned and controlled and like there was a lack of emotion in them but the live recordings are more emotional because it's just him on stage being him you know so like i think it shows more of who johnny cash was as a performer and also like gives more from the songs than you get from the studio recordings that kind of you know dull them down a little bit for you know what people wanted to consume in music back then so that's that's one way i would go the other way, if somebody wanted to push their boundaries more and listen to something that resonated more with me, I would choose something by Tom Waits. I really love Tom Waits, and my favorite stuff from his is the more eclectic stuff that he does after his early career. Like, his early stuff is very, like, bluesy, and, like, it's taken me a long time to appreciate some of his early stuff because it... Like, I, I never listened to that type of music, like jazzy, bluesy kind of stuff. Um, but now I can, I've dug in more slowly over time, and there's some stuff there that really stands out. The first CD I ever listened to of Tom Waits was uh, called Beautiful Maladies, and it's a compilation of his songs from when he was publishing on Island Records. And the, like, there's a lot of strange, weird, unique songs, like... Uh, some of the like instruments listed as being played in the song will be like a chair. And, you know, so it's like he, oh, he, weird. he uses really unique things to produce the sounds that he wants to make. Like his music is, it's not like anything really abstract or anything like that. Like, have you listened to Tom Waits? A little bit. Not very much though. Yeah. Like his stuff, like a lot of the songs that he's written and done, like have been more famously known for somebody else doing them because like, he's a great songwriter. Um, but his stuff that he makes himself is is uh, more unique. I think uh, I think if I had to choose an album of his, I would choose Mule Variations. It was 
I believe that one was released on Epitaph or on their like their um, their other label or their sister label or whatever one or the other. Anti, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But it has some really good songs uh, that have stood out to me. Uh, one of his songs, Big in Japan, was on uh, Punkarama CD. So that was one of the earlier exposures I had to Tom Waits. But one of the songs called Chocolate Jesus is really good. And that one stands out to me because uh, a friend of mine from back in California had seen him perform on Letterman. He's just such a performer, so he's not just doing a song. It's like he's putting on an act. My my buddy Clean, like, just, like, this resonated big with him. And, like, I, I finally found it on YouTube and watched it. And he does the song, and uh, he'll do stuff. Like, in that one, he uses, uh, like, a megaphone to distort his voice. <laughs> but then, like, he does the song... He, like, throws down some sand and does, like, um, you know, like, some soft shoe in it. But at the end, he takes off his, he wears, like, a fedora. He takes it off, and it was full of glitter. And he takes it off and bows, and this glitter spills out everywhere. And it's just, like, the whole performance of it has uh, has always really stuck with me. And I think that, like, that performance is a, an easy, small way to showcase what makes Tom Waits Tom Waits. <laughs> and th- that album is a, a good mix of stuff. Um Rain Dogs is also one of my favorites. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to check these out and give them a listen. And on a little bit of a tangent there, the first like new released album that I bought was uh, his album. I take it back, actually. It was not the first one. But I I bought this one. It's called Real Gone. And I bought it when it, was, when it just came out. Uh, there's more political stuff on it because the stuff it was 2004. So it was like, you know, in, in Bush's presidency. Uh, so there was some political war stuff going on and some of the songs address that there's a song on the album called uh hoist that rag that was my favorite song i loved it right off and what's funny is uh some of the things i loved about it is how kind of raw and gritty it felt and then years later i go on spotify to listen to the album again and it's remastered and that song was actually changed quite a bit it drove me nuts because i liked the remaster too but it drove me nuts that I didn't have a way to listen to the original version because I mm. love the original version because like you, there's not like an unmastered, unremastered version on Spotify. Like it's just that's all they have is that version of it, you know. And I, yeah, like I don't have the CD anymore from years ago. It's um, like how Megadeth <laughs> went back and re-recorded all their vocals for Rust in Peace, and now it's hard to find version with the original vocals. Yeah. Yeah, so I um I was yeah. sharing this with you a little bit. So I, I um I, I got a new iPad yesterday, and one of the things I was really excited about was being able to put some music from iTunes on my iPad and listen to it because I haven't been able to listen to some of this music in forever because for some reason iTunes won't sync up with my my iPhone, which is stupid and Apple is evil or something like that. But I was able to work it with my iPad. So being able to listen to that Tom Waits album, the original version. I'm excited about. And the other thing is De La Soul. Their first four albums, which are their best four albums, in my opinion, and very critical to, um, you know, to pushing boundaries in, in hip hop and stuff. You can't buy them anywhere because there were so many samples in the albums that when music was being released, how it was before, before digital became a thing like it is now, there were, you know, the, the rights were cleared and stuff like that. So there were deals in place. But with the advent of streaming music, you know, Spotify and stuff like that, Tommy Boy 
won't they won't clear the rights for that. They they just have this music like shoved away now, hmm. and that drives me nuts. Because first of all, like these are four really good albums and four really critical albums, and nobody can listen to them unless they already have them. So I've been keeping my eyes out for them on CD, and I've actually I found one of them. De La Soul is dead, their second album. So I have that on CD, but I also don't have easy access to a CD player. Um, like we have a CD player in our family vehicle, but I'm not gonna you know regularly listen to that there. I have some, but um, so having my having it on my iPad is going to be awesome because I can listen to music, you know, with my Bluetooth headphones on my iPad just as easy as I can on my iPhone. So, cool. um, yeah, like it's unlocked uh, something that has been locked away from me for a long time. Cool. Well, that's awesome. All right. Well, I think that ends our interrogation of each other. Yeah, I like how that worked out, and I like the. The questions don't have to be overly complicated to, no. to get good answers. I think, like, we both know each other well enough to throw in caveats that keep it from being, like, just uh, the obvious answer. Like me saying, yeah. mm-hmm. aside from Star Wars, what movie? Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I think this was a successful experiment and something that we'll do again. I think so. I like it. All right. Wrap All us right. up. Sounds good. Uh, you can find all past episodes wherever you found this one so whether that's your apple podcasts or spotify's or stitchers or or whatever it is we should be there you can find me on twitter at bad deacon and you can find my friend paul on twitter at who's paul and that is mostly where we seem to hang out in the social media world so stop by and say hi and i think that that's about it so until next time Talk to you later, Paul.